begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ on this wonderful Sunday morning. Uh, opening question for you, have any of you ever traveled to Iceland? Yeah, there we go. Yeah, we got a couple. Um, and and um, I think maybe at one point we'd say like, well, that would be kind of wild to do, but um, my son Drew and my daughter Kira are busy planning a trip to Iceland. And out of my, or in my mind, the first thing in my mind was that that's kind of crazy, like you really can't do that. Um, and then they showed me how cheap tickets were and that there are direct flights, I believe from Denver, direct into Reykjavik in Iceland. So that's a warning to parents. When your kids do their homework, you got to be careful how you react. So, um, okay. So a few of you have been there. Maybe you've seen it. Um, the rest of you are thinking, well, maybe, maybe I'm going to take a trip to Iceland now, right? Uh, I've been told that it's a remarkably beautiful place. Um, at certain times of the year, it's a remarkable, beautiful place. Uh, um, specifically when sun is shining in Iceland. So uh, this is a map of Iceland. If you see that pin at the very top, uh, there's a city that's in the north there, and I'm going to just absolutely um, probably butcher the phonetics of Iceland pronunciations. Uh, but the city in the north is Siglufjörður. Why are you giggling? That was a perfect pronunciation of their... No, you're right. I probably just butchered it. But um, we'll just, we'll, we'll call it, we're going to call it Siglufjörður. It for short. That wasn't short. Uh, they're in the very north. Um, so when we talk about visiting Iceland, you specifically want to kind of look what time of year are you going. And um, all the flights, I think, go into Reykjavik, which is the, the capital. But um, if you go to some of the cities and towns on the north end, you want to pay attention to the time of year because, as you can guess, there are times in their season when there is very, very little sun. Now, this is a, this is the city that I was talking about, um, and this is a beautiful time to go. Uh, but during the winter months, you probably don't necessarily want to visit. Uh, so there are times when the sun never gets uh, above the horizon, and specifically with this town itself, you can see it's on the banks of some pretty steep terrain. Um, so even if the sun gets above the horizon, the shadow of the mountains at times keeps this city completely in darkness. This is a good tourism pitch for Iceland so far, right? Yeah. Again, what I said, pick the time of year, right? Uh, so there, there's, a good, there's a time of year when, um, when it's, it's in large part dark in the city and in parts of Iceland. You might want to avoid those. But there are moments when the sun comes back. And for a lot of these cities in all of Iceland and specifically in the towns to the north, uh, they actually have a celebration for literally when the sun returns. We just, as Coloradans, we are so, we're so spoiled. Like if we get like two days of overcast, you're all, you're all grumbling. You're like, ah, oh, man, right? This is like the Midwest or something, right? This is like Minnesota, right? So um, we get like two days of overcast and we can hardly handle it. Well, they had, you know, an entire winter time. So they celebrate uh, when the sun comes back. There's the celebration is called a solar, solar degur celebration, which literally means just the sun rising again on their city. Right? 
It's something that they look forward to. It's one of the bigger celebrations that they have. Um, and I always like celebrations when they combine food with it. So on Solardegur, uh, this is one of the traditional dishes that they have. It's like kind of a cross between pancakes and crepes. Uh, and they roll it up with like uh, fruits and berries and, and some whipped cream and things like that. So, um, but they celebrate literally the return of sunshine to their city, right? Uh, kids get off of school, they welcome that sunlight, the warmth of it kind of coming back in. Uh, they, have, they have Solar Cafe, which we're, we're being, becoming linguists now. Solar Cafe is sun coffee, so you, you wait to have your coffee for when the sun returns, right? Uh, um, and within that society, there are those that will wait and celebrate and not have their solar cafe and their, their crepes or pancakes, not only until the sun returns to their town, but until it hits their specific house or their doorway. And I thought that's a pretty beautiful picture, I think, for us. I mean, I think it's a beautiful celebration for them, but I think that's a pretty beautiful picture for us as we celebrate Easter, right? Um, we are one Sunday after Easter. We've seen um, Christ and the, 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 the beauty and the light of that resurrection, the joy of an Easter Sunday um, and how that has warmed our hearts. But I, I sometimes fear maybe the shadows of that loom large over us and our living. And so today, um, we want to we celebrate. We want to, to see the light of Christ, not just on Easter Sunday, but the Sunday after Easter and the Sunday after that, and the Sunday after that, and actually all year long. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, the Apostle Peter is going to help us uh, focus in on that. Why? Why can we as believers have just as much joy the Sunday after Easter as we did on Easter Sunday? Um, ultimately, it's going to be pointing to Christ. So that's where we're going to head today. Uh, our text is from 1 Peter. You're welcome to follow along with me in your bulletin if you'd like. Um, I also have some of the text on the screen here as well. Uh, and then for those of you that like that are studious and you like to fill things in, uh, we've got kind of three parts to our sermon today, and these are the fill-in-the-blanks that I'll kind of fill in for you as, as we go through and as we walk, walk through our text, okay? So our text today, as I mentioned, is from 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, and we've got to kind of set the historical setting of when that letter takes place and maybe more specifically what was happening within the lives of the believers while Peter was writing this letter to, uh, to the exiles. So uh, the first two verses of 1 Peter talk about who the audience is. So specifically, he's writing to what he calls the exiles in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So you can see the map here, um, and that's largely on the, the, your kind of right-hand side there. That's what we would call Asia Minor. So um, Peter is writing to, to new Christians, to scattered Christians, both Jew and Gentile, um, to brand new mission churches, largely in the area of, of Asia Minor, okay? Now, that brings us to kind of the timing of this letter a little bit as well. So our best estimates are that this letter was written about, we would say about 60 to 62 AD. So we're talking about 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, now Peter is writing a letter to those who, who began in Jerusalem but have been scattered throughout the known world, throughout the Mediterranean. Um, they were scattered. They brought Jesus with them. Not coincidentally, every place they went, new churches popped up. 
okay? Um, maybe less of a, of a church planning strategy and just more of them simply sharing the joy that they knew they had from Easter, right? Think of, of the, the light of Christ kind of emanating out into the known world. So, 1 Peter takes place about 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, there could be some reason maybe why those disciples or Peter himself or the scattered believers um, would have felt the long shadows of Easter already at that point. Um, because life had not been necessarily easy after Jesus' death and resurrection. After the glory of Pentecost, Jesus' ascension, things had become difficult for those believers. So that's the setting that Peter is writing to and the people that he's writing to. And here's why I'd say I think it's important for us here today, not just because it's the Sunday after Easter, but because I think we um, very much and intimately maybe feel those long shadows Right? and yearn for uh, the warmth of Christ, the vibrancy of Easter, the reality of his presence. Um, and I think at times it can feel very cold and distant. Um, so Peter's writing to them, but he's, he's writing to you as well. So let's jump into our text here this morning. Uh, if you like filling stuff in and you want to make doodles on your page or on your bulletin, uh, this is our first fill in the blank. So Peter is going to um, very much root us back 20 years prior to those readers uh, in the resurrection, okay? Now, why is that important? Um, being rooted in the resurrection is ultimately what is going to sustain us in, in our living, right, and in our lives as believers, right? Because um, if, if, the, if the light and the life of Christ start to get obscured, not coincidentally, it starts to obscure the rest of our Christian living as well. Uh, that happened a little bit. Uh, some of you know the Protestant reformer Martin Luther, uh, late 1400s. Um, he was kind of in this bout of, of this funk. Maybe we would call it a depression, but um, he just wasn't doing real well. Um, his wife, Katie Catherine, uh, um, kind of saw him in this funk. And uh, I think at some point the, the, the story goes that she just kind of got fed up with it, like enough of this, like this, this down in the mouth, this this... She said, enough with it. And so one day, um, as story goes, she came downstairs and she was dressed all in black, right? Just dressed all in black. And Martin Luther was sitting there and he's like, what is the deal? Like, what are, what's going on? Why are you dressed all in black? Specifically, he said, why, why are you dressed like you're going to a funeral who's died? And Katie said to Luther, well, God must have died, right? Because that's how you're acting, Right? Luther says, oh, God didn't die. And Katie responds to him and says, yeah, he's alive, so act like it, right? What was the, what was the reminder? The reminder was uh, um, life is tough and life is difficult and you're going to have moments where you feel as though you're in the, in the valley of shadow of death, but that doesn't change the object of truth that Christ died and rose from death, that he still lives, right? That he still lives, that was important for Martin Luther. That was important for the recipients of this letter. And I think that's incredibly important for us as well. And so Peter does that. He roots us in the reality of that resurrection. So first few verses of our text here I'll read for you. Uh, specifically verses 3 through 5. Peter says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay. You look at verses 3 through 5, and um, for a pastor who's reading it, it's sometimes a little bit hard because what do you notice about verses 3 through 5? Um, it's one sentence, isn't it? Right? It's one sentence. Uh, and there are times, uh, um, um, especially I think here, where that's not by accident. When Peter writes this, he is intentionally um, stacking things upon one another. So I don't think he was thinking he wanted to trip up pastors when they're reading it, but he's doing it for you and for his readers. He's saying, um, all of these beautiful things, all of these realities are strung together. So much so, I'm going to put it into one beautifully long sentence, right? Um, and string you all the way to the very end. In fact, while I was doing this sermon, I thought about, well, maybe I'll just do verses three through four. And I realized, no, you can't. Like Peter, Peter wrote this whole sentence. Let's read it all the way to the end, right? And I think there's purpose in that. He is specifically connecting us and his readers to a living hope, and that is anchored in Jesus' resurrection. Now, um, what does that look like? What does that mean for us? It's, it's nothing short of our hearts going from death to life. That's what Peter is, is making the point of. He's saying, you were once dead, now you are alive. So he calls this a, a living hope, right? That it is alive and it is active. And what is it rooted in? Once again, the object of truth and fact that Jesus died and rose again for your sins. Because I think Peter knew this. I think he knew how our emotions um, can ebb and flow. I think he knew how, how, how passing the things of this life can be, right? Um, moments in your life where you say, I was, I was on top of the world. Moments where maybe you say, I can't even understand if I can go any lower, See, Peter understood that, our Lord understood that, and I think we understand that, right? Emotions ebb and flow, realities of your life, of, of the circumstances of your life come and go. But here's what's amazing is Peter doesn't root your faith, your living hope, your living faith in any of those things. He roots it specifically in the birth of, or in the um, resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Now, what Example: what, um, How did that play out in the life of Peter and those disciples? Well, we have record of that. Actually, traditionally, in the Sundays following Easter, um, in place of the Old Testament reading in many churches, um, you just start reading kind of consecutively or chronologically through the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is the, the account of the birth of the early Christian church, right? So it basically is, here's what these early Christians did, how they acted, how they treated one another, and how they took that message into the known world. And if they hadn't done so, we could argue we wouldn't be here this morning, right? And so um, Peter is saying, uh, no matter what these circumstances are, as believers, we root ourselves in the object of truth of Christ and his resurrection, and that creates a new birth. Now, um, Peter wasn't alone in that. Uh, the Apostle Paul uses very similar language. Romans 6 verse 4, Paul says this, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Okay, So there's this contrast that Peter and Paul are talking about. 
of new life, not based on how on, on, on um, how inspiring the music was on a Sunday morning, on um, how, how great or boring your pastor's sermon was on a Sunday morning, uh, not based on how many good things are happening in your life or bad things, but specifically new life comes from Christ, from his resurrection, right? And that fact and that reality doesn't change, and it does change our hearts. So Paul says that in Romans 6. Ephesians, he says this, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And so, not just Peter, <clears throat> but the Apostle Paul, and I would argue all those early Christians, um, they, had, they had all kinds of highs and lows. And yet, how were they able to survive it all? Ultimately, because they were rooted in the object of truth of Jesus' resurrection. Where do we see that with those disciples? Almost every single apostle was going to be martyred for their faith. Generations of Christians that died for their faith and witness of Christ, who lost jobs, who, 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 um, who, who lost livelihoods, all those things because the reality was Christ lived and they couldn't deny that. So Peter says we root ourselves in that, that makes us alive and allows us ultimately to live. Okay, which brings us to our second point here. That life that we have in Christ, in his resurrection, ultimately bends us towards life, um, towards light specifically. Any of you know what the scientific term for what these plants are doing here? Yeah, yeah, heliotrope or phototropism, yeah, yeah, so towards the sun, yeah. So um, you've seen it. It, um, it. What's a real fascinating thing is if you have plants in your house, where will they always turn their faces towards? Towards the sunlight, right? Um, and they say that most plants, if you turn them around, it takes only about eight hours for them to turn themselves around and to face the sun, right? So it takes a little bit of time, but they will always face towards the light. I think that also becomes a good illustration for us as we, as we live and as we travel from Easter and in our lives. That as believers, the life and light of Christ turns us, bends us toward Christ and his light. Okay? And Peter talks about that in 6 and 7. I'll read that for you. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Um, and this is fascinating. So Peter is writing to those believers, right? Writing to us. Um, in the book of 1 Peter, Peter uses that word um, suffer 17 times. In fact, in every chapter in 1 Peter, Peter recognizes that there is suffering. And I think that's a beautiful thing to remember. As Peter turns our eyes towards the gloriousness of Christ and the life we have in him, he isn't so arrogant, he isn't so short-sighted, he isn't, isn't so naive to think that you, that we, don't suffer. Right? In fact, Peter says, I'm going to say it. I know that you suffer. I know that you have pain. I know that there are grief. And in fact, I know that there are trials. Now, Peter would have known that maybe more than any other. Remember, this is 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. 
um, if we date it to about 60 AD in there, um, the intense persecution of, under the Roman Emperor Nero had already begun. Uh, they estimate by about 55 AD, somewhere in there. So Peter had surely lost friends and loved ones and people he cared about for simply being Christians. He had seen suffering and grief and trial, and those that were listening had seen it as well. And you felt the same, right? The pain of simply existing in this world, sometimes that pain is self-inflicted through our own choices or sin. Quite often it's just the pain of living in a world that is broken. And we see that on almost every level, within our relationships, within our bodies as they start to break down, within our monetary system, within um, the joy that we want to have from our workplaces, all those things we see, we see brokenness, right? And I think Peter understood that. In fact, your God above understands that, right? And so Peter says, I understand that you suffer, but he ultimately points us to the life-giving light of Christ, right? Um, When we are facing the sun, maybe when you're out camping and you're facing the campfire, what happens to your back? Yeah, it's pretty cold, isn't it, right? Um, Peter recognizes that that happens, right? That life is not easy, and yet, as believers, he, he, he bends us towards the light of Christ. We find Christ not only in his resurrection, but on the pages of Scripture. Um, he recognizes that that life, that faith, is valuable, right? And this is one where Peter, who was speaking to Gentiles as well, but a lot of Jews that had become Christians, um, roots some of his language in the Old Testament. So specifically, uh, Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 3, says this, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So Peter is purposefully anchoring Christ and the fulfillment of the Old Testament in words such as Isaiah. Many of those believers would have known those, right? And what is he saying about our faith? He is recognizing that pain and suffering are present, and yet God will use that pain and suffering to refine, to harden, um, and to, to drive us closer to him in our faith. In fact, he says it's more valuable than gold, more valuable than anything you can have this side of heaven. Everything can be stripped away, and yet God shields us and holds us strong. Okay, so Peter says, let's be rooted in his resurrection as we travel out from Easter. Second of all, as believers, let's uh, let's be bent towards light, towards Christ and his word. Then he leaves us with a really beautiful picture. Um... Last fill in the blank. All future and no past. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. Uh, some of you, are you baseball fans? So baseball started. Uh, Jamie and Tatum and I went to uh, a Rockies game the other day, which was remarkably fun. Other than there were more Cardinals fans there than Rockies fans. <laughs> that part was a little disappointing, but uh, they won. They won 4-7. to seven. It was a great game. Um, but it was, this, is, this is Coors Field, beautiful field, right? Um, if, if you like baseball, um, um, it started, right? And, and, and just all of the beauty of it. Um, maybe some of you have ever seen um, the movie about Jackie Robinson. 
Um, in it, there's a man named Branch Rickey. He is played by Harrison Ford, and he makes this statement on opening day of the new season. He says, it's another opening day, Harold. All future, no past. <laughs> right? I think that's a pretty beautiful picture for us as believers in Christ. Right? All future and no past. And that does not mean that the Rockies are going to go win the World Series. Okay? I'm not making a prediction. But that's a beautiful picture for us, I think, as we come out of Easter. Right? All future and no past. And that's ultimately how God views us. Right? Uh, the past has been forgiven. Our sins have been washed clean. And we're able to, to bend our eyes, turn our lives, orient our lives towards Christ and towards his forgiveness. Peter does that in the very last couple of verses. He says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, Peter points us towards Christ. And what does he draw from him? What do we draw from Easter? An inexpressible and glorious joy. Rooted in him, rooted in the fact that he lives, right? That he is not dead, that we cannot find his bones in a grave, um, but that his resurrection ultimately powers our living, our weathering of suffering, and ultimately is, is to whom we orient our lives as believers. This is the local church in that town uh, in Northern Ireland, I picked, or Northern Iceland, rather. I picked this picture. Uh, if you can kind of see on the bottom, uh, all the kids got out of school to celebrate uh, their Sunday, uh, the literal sun returning day, um, and they gathered on the footsteps of the local church and waited for that sunshine to hit them. Maybe that's a picture of us as believers as well, right? Um, um, we are not pretending that life is not hard or difficult, that there is not brokenness or sin around us, or at times that we do not feel the long shadows that are cast by simply living in this world. And yet, brothers and sisters, along with Peter and generations of Christians, we, are, we remain filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because we know that that son is coming back in Christ. We know that as he returns, he brings um, full forgiveness and love with him. And so... As we journey out from Easter, let's do the same that those early Christians did, right? Let's be rooted in that resurrection. Let's bend and orient our lives towards Christ and his light. And ultimately, let's express our joy, that glorious joy that we know we have from Christ. Amen.